Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to begin reading in verse number 29 in a a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 29. It's um, uh, been a beautiful weekend so far, hasn't it? And it's a beautiful day to be worshiping the Lord. And it's it's good to see everybody here. Uh, We're in... uh, we're in, what, middle or late spring by now, and we just celebrated re- the resurrection just a few Sundays ago. Easter Sunday is what we call it, and the kids, I know, look forward to some of the special treats that they get on Easter Sunday. Parents do, too. I understand that. Uh, you know who you are if you're one of those parents that would rob their kids' uh, um, Easter basket, right? But it, Every year, some of the treats that are available are, are such things as chocolate bunnies and cream-filled uh, chocolate eggs, but the piece de resistance is the Reese's peanut butter egg, right? Um, I know there's a lot of people out there that would agree with me on that, but to get those shapes, the, the candy has to be molded. Liquid, Liquid chocolate is either poured or injected into a, a mold or a form and allowed to harden. And through this process, the candy takes on the, the shape of the mold. And once it's removed, it, it looks like the mold. And just as candy is, is molded, chocolate, um, just as candy chocolate is, is molded, in our own lives, uh, Ideas and philosophies and theologies and value systems shape our own lives, don't they? Uh, they shape how we think. They shape how we, what we feel, where we spend our time and energy and our money. And so when somebody looks at your life and hears your conversation, the question I want to ask is, what do they see? What do they see when they see your conversation? Do they see... Dollar signs because your life is wrapped up in material things and possessions? Do they see an ego-shaped life since pride has has fashioned you? Do they see a pleasure-driven life? Or maybe your life is is shaped by sins such as as anger or or lust or bitterness or, or laziness. But our lives are being shaped, aren't they? And in this section of Scripture, we see what must really shape our lives. And of course, we know the answer to that. Uh, the, it's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. But when you, when you look back over history, and you see the victory over death and sin, and know uh, with certainty that you too will rise just like Jesus Christ did, then it should change how you live in the present, shouldn't it? Therefore, the resurrection should shape our lives. In this section of of chapter 15, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. And when you look at those questions, it becomes apparent that the principle that Paul is moving the Corinthians to is this, that the way we live should reveal what we actually believe And what we believe should have a sanctifying effect on the way we live. In other words, Paul meant that the resurrection should shape how we live and what our lives look like. So if you'll stand with me, we'll we'll read this little section of Scripture, beginning in verse number 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, 
Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short little section of Scripture, so densely packed with spiritual truth and implications of the resurrection. And I do pray that we will examine our lives and see how we are being shaped, and that you will, by your grace, by your mercy, by your loving kindness, will reveal to us ways that we are being shaped by things that are not the resurrection and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. The resurrection should shape three areas of our lives. Our worship, our risks, and our holiness. And in the very first verse that we read, verse number 29, Paul shares the fact that the resurrection should shape our worship. Look at verse number 29 with me. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? How many know what this means? (laughs) Yeah, you don't know what this means, do you? Um, This is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament. Scholars have puzzled over these words for centuries. Just to let you know, there are over 40 interpretations of this verse. And it's going to take me a while to unpack them all. No, I'm just kidding. Don't panic, okay? One scholar counted over 200 interpretations. But an honest pastor will admit that he cannot be dogmatic about what this verse means. There's no honest person that can be dogmatic about it. However, what we can do, and I want to show you this. I sent this out in an email, and I want to do this with you. We can use basic principles of interpretation to know what it does not mean. And I think that's very important for us to, to, to do that. And so the first thing is that it does not teach, this verse does not teach vicarious or, or proxy baptism for the dead. Oh, what is that? Everybody, that, that just cleared everything up for you, right? Well, when we lived in, in Memphis, uh, my family, the Mormons built a tabernacle in the suburb in which we lived. We lived in a suburb called Bartlett. They built a tabernacle there. And before they opened it, they have several evenings of tours. And in the tour, I, I took uh, every Tuesday night, my youth group, we would go door-to-door uh, evangelism, basically, is what we did. And that particular Tuesday night, I thought it would be very good for them to see the Mormon tabernacle. And then I went back after the tour and talked to them about the Mormonism and explained what was wrong. But they took us to the back. And um, what happened to my, there we go. Um, They took us to the back and they showed us this very ornate baptistry. It was similar to this one. This is not the one there, but it was very similar to this one. And you can't see it, but there's oxen underneath holding the basin up to mimic the 
the Old Testament um, laver, you know, the, the sea, the bronze sea, right? And they explained to us, they said, this is where we baptize on behalf of the dead. And they got to that, they arrived at that from this verse. However, Paul didn't teach that a person who has died can be saved or helped in any way by another person being baptized on his behalf. It's never taught in the New Testament. The second thing that we know is that um, it is not teaching that water baptism saves. This, ter- this is called baptismal regeneration. I'm sure you've heard that. Some of you have come out of churches where they taught that, right? That baptism actually saves you. Um, or that the baptism is some way necessary for salvation. That is unscriptural. It flies in the face of direct scriptural principles. For by grace you've been saved through faith, right? This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, with such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. What saves you? It's Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, right? That, that paid for it. So whatever this phrase means, it cannot mean that some people were getting baptized for their dead relatives because, um, so that the dead could be released from some sort of hell or, or some kind of purgatory or something like that. That interpretation flies in the face of clear and direct biblical teaching about salvation. So the question is then, what does it mean? What does it mean? What is the best interpretation? Okay, so I'm going to say it this way. I believe that the interpretation with, that's the least problematic is this. Baptism on behalf of the dead refers to people being saved because of the exemplary lives of faithful witnesses of believers who had died. And um, I've, I've seen this over and over. I've read about it. Even, even some of the books that I was reading this week, they, they went back to those examples and gave very concrete examples. Somebody lived an exemplary life, whether it was mom or dad or a friend, and when they died, God, the Lord used that to, to prick that, a person's heart, and they got saved. And, and so uh, that's the interpretation that I'm rolling with today. Now, ask me in a year or two, I might have a different interpretation of that verse. Because it, it literally, it's, it's that difficult of a verse, isn't it? But what is, what is Paul's argument here? And this helps us with the interpretation. Paul's argument is this. You are certain to meet death. Why then identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in baptism if you're going to die and that's it. Remember the problem. The problem is they were saying there's no resurrection. There were people in Corinth who were saying there's no resurrection. If there is no future resurrection, if the last enemy will not be destroyed, if all things will not be made subject to the Son of God, to identify yourself as a Christian and to become part of the church is an absolute waste of time. That's, that's Paul's argument. So, uh, as, as Christians, then, we believe in the resurrection, do we not? We believe not only did Christ uh, rise from the dead, 
But we will one day, our bodies will meet our souls in the air and we will forever be in the presence of the Lord embodied, embodied souls. And as Christians, our worship in the 21st century ought to bear the wonderful testimony to the fact that Christ is our risen Lord. As Christians, we strive to live out the implications of our baptism when we, when we meditate and believe the truth symbolized in the ordinance. And what is that? What does Paul say it symbolizes? He says this, For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And these verses are written right on the heels of chapter 5 where he talks about the, the abounding grace of God. And then he says, but I know what your argument's going to be. If God's grace is greater than our sin, then let's just sin. And he says, no, by no means. Because you were baptized with Jesus Christ to put away sin. So you're no longer enslaved to sin, to put sin to death. In other words, we draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ in whom we were baptized for the mortifying of sin and a growth of our Christ-likeness. The resurrection should not only shape our attitude towards sin, but it should shape our attitude towards the, the Lord's Day as well, shouldn't it? Well, what, what did we do three or four weeks ago? We set aside the day after Passover because that is the day that Christ arose from the dead, right? We set that day aside. We call it Easter Sunday. And, and we celebrate the resurrection. But the fact of the matter is, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day. That day, today, belongs to him he claimed it when he rose from the dead and so when we observe the lord's day we testify to the historical reality of christ's resurrection as well listen everybody hear this not only the reality of the resurrection but his lordship over our time his lordship over time not only is he lord over time he's lord over all time and if he is, then he claims sovereignty over our time as well. And he sets apart one entire day for himself. We should therefore set apart a day of worship and celebration. Should we not? It's not my day for recreation. It's not my sports day. It's not my day for me time it is the lord's day and his alone one more thought the the it, the lord's day is a resurrection celebration and if that is true then our worship must not be mechanical it must be thoughtful i was thinking today as we went through the songs Mike read scripture before every song and tied scripture to every song that we sang, didn't he? Is that thoughtful? Were you that thoughtful when you sang today? It, our, our, our worship should be 
not mechanical, but it should be thoughtful and theological and joyful and exuberant because Christ the Lord has risen. <laughs> but sometimes people, people sing these worship songs like their dog just died. They're so long in the face or, or they're so bored looking when they, when they sing these songs. That it's like the truth means nothing. How can we worship Jesus with long faces, or how can we be bored with the majesty of Jesus Christ? Yes, we must mourn our sin and unfaithfulness, and certainly our unbelief must break our hearts, but if Christ is alive and interceding for us, then we have every reason for hope. We have every reason to smile through the tears of repentance and shout, Hallelujah! So the resurrection it shapes a lot, every aspect of our worship from the whole day, it does. But the resurrection also shapes the risks that we take. It, it shapes how we face dangers. If, if the dead are not raised, why would anybody be willing to endure what these apostles endured? A resurrection-shaped life should be evident in the risks that one takes. Verse number 30, look at what the apostle writes in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Now the we there in, in 1 Corinthians, almost every time that word we is used, it refers to the apostles. And so he's talking about the apostles. And Paul and the apostles were in constant danger from the Romans because they followed Christ and proclaimed him rather than Caesar as king and lord. And so they were in danger. They were also in danger from the Jews as well, because their opponents, the Jews, saw them as heretics attempting to overthrow their ancient Jewish faith. So this question, why are we in danger, has a force of a strong assertion. In other words, if there is no resurrection, then we are in danger every hour for no good. Isn't that true? Then he went on to say in verse number 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So what is he saying with this rhetorical question? He's saying, why make this life miserable if this life is all there is? Why be in danger every hour if we have no security to look forward to? Why die daily? That is, risk your life in self-denying ministry. If death ends it all, death to sin and self is the very demand of Christ for his disciples. Do you believe that? Uh-oh, it just got real quiet. I didn't hear anybody. Honestly, do you believe what the Bible teaches? That if, if Jesus Christ demands our very lives, then we should be willing to face dangers. Do you believe that? Good, good. Look at what Paul says about his dangers. He said this in 2 Corinthians, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, 
in toil and hardship, though through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul could have, the first time he was beaten, the first time he was stoned, first time he got the, the 40 lashes save one, what could he have done? You know what? This whole apostleship thing is way too dangerous for me. I might lose my life. I give up. But he didn't do that. And that's commendable, isn't it? Paul faced the, the, the possibility of death every day and faced it from a multitude of directions. Then every day he had to die to self and be willing to face the prospect of his demise for the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anything of that kind of surrender? Have you learned to place your life in the Lord's hands each day to be used in life or in death as he sees fit? Have you? I'm going to be quite honest. I think for most of us, the answer is no. We, we live in a safety culture, don't we? We live in a safety culture. I'll tell you a little secret. I rode in the bed of a truck when I was a kid. <laughs> we used to ride bikes. Did any of you make ramps? And to a kid, a ramp about this wide is, is perfectly fine. On a rock, so when you got on the ramp, the whole thing's wobbling, right? And if you wrecked that bike, we didn't have helmets and knee pads and, shoulder, and elbow pads and bubble wrap all around us. There were real consequences to falling, right? Remember the old playgrounds? Remember those, remember those horses on the coil spring? Oh, you could really get hurt on that or the teeter-totter, right? Riding in the deck of the car, the back deck. You ever do that? We live in a safety culture, don't we? And we have... We have unknowingly taken on that safety culture. Think about this. We have, on the one hand, Paul willing to face actual and severe danger for the gospel. And on the other hand, churches all over the country, including this one, cannot get enough volunteers because I might get sick from a virus. My, how we have fallen from the obedience to Christ that says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. You cannot tell people that the resurrection is shaping the risk that you take if you're unwilling to take a slight risk to serve other people in the church. True, right? Where are we on all this? We're, we're not bold. We, we have learned already in 1 Corinthians 15 that God is sovereign over everything, even death. He's sovereign over the time of your death. So if that is true, and you really believe that, then let's get busy serving one another. Because your time is in His hands. Look at what Paul does in verse number 32. 
He continues, he said, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, it's hard to know if Paul fought with actual beasts or if he's speaking metaphorically. And the reason, the reason I say that, it's highly unlikely that, first of all, that Paul as a Roman citizen would have been put in the arena. I mean, that, that almost never happened. But secondly, it's also highly unlikely that he would have survived being thrown to the lions. Okay, so he's probably speaking metaphorically here, but his citizenship uh, was most likely not, not violated here. So it's, it's completely absurd to think that Paul and the apostles would risk all the dangers and hardships and losses related to the preaching of the gospel in this life if there was no resurrection hope. But look at what he does. He, he says, in fact, if there is no resurrection, what does he say? Look at the verse again. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, in your Bible, is that in quotation marks? It is. It's a quotation from Isaiah 22. Turn back to Isaiah 22 because the context of this is so extremely important. Isaiah 22, it's, it's verse number 13, but uh, we're going we're gonna to talk all around verse number 13 for just a minute. Actually, let's read the verse, and then, and then we'll, we'll talk about the context. In Isaiah 22, 13, he, Isaiah says this, And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, understanding that context is, it helps understand why Paul chose to use these words in the situation. What is going on? In the first eight verses of Isaiah 22, Paul, or uh, Paul, <laughs> Isaiah, let me get that right. Isaiah was foretelling the coming destruction of Jerusalem. So what did the Israelites do at that time in Jerusalem? They were, they were diligent to fortify the city against the enemy attack, but they were completely unmindful to God. Their true protection, by the way. They were militarily savvy, but they were spiritually foolish. The, the Lord called, to, called them to repent, but you know what they chose to do? They chose to party. Rather than repent, they reveled. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They, they pursued pleasure, heedless of God's call and careless of spiritual things. You, you see that in verses 12 to 14. Their mantra was, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There is no spiritual reality, so we're just going to live it up until we die. And Paul saw this attitude of inattention to spiritual reality and the pursuit of the immediate to be the logical position of anybody who denied a future resurrection. Why put your life on the line? Why face the dangers for the gospel if you die and that's it? And that's, that's the logical conclusion. Is And you see this all over the world, all over our culture. I'm going to get everything I can out of this life because I'm going to die and that's it. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow I die. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken a risk? No one can serve Jesus without taking risks. No, 
you won't have to face the lions in the arena. And you may not be thrown in jail for giving somebody a gospel tract. But you will have to face the risk of being rejected, hurt by a harsh word, made fun of, overlooked for promotions, maybe even lose your job, banished from family gatherings, right? These things these are real risks. The risk is real. But listen, the, the return that we hope in is certain because the dead will be raised. And so if you take up your cross and, and surrender to serve Christ and embrace the risk, then on the resurrection day, you know what you're going to say? It was worth it. Paul said it, right? Paul said that the, this present situation I'm in is not comparable to the eternal way to glory that I'm going to experience one day. And that is so absolutely true. There is no risk that we can take for Jesus Christ that is any greater than the glory that we will receive for it. We have to remember that. And so the resurrection shapes our worship and it shapes our risk and it should shape our holiness in verses 33 and 34. So the Christian is to have resurrection-shaped worship and risk-taking and a resurrection-shaped life. And it's, that life is evident by the holiness that you pursue. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and um, notice now Paul stops asking the rhetorical questions. So he's been asking these rhetorical questions and he gives three commands here. There's three commands, uh, imperatives, set forth the agenda for holiness. And this is what it is. Number one, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Number two, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And number three, do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So what are the three principles? What are the three principles for holiness that Paul wants us to observe in light of resurrection? Number one, avoid bad company. Paul inserts a proverb from a secular society. So he quoted Isaiah 22, and here he quotes a, a line from a comedy written by Menander. And it, it's bad company ruins good morals. Benjamin Franklin hilariously re, uh, restated this maxim this way. He said this, he that lieth down with the dogs riseth with fleas. And so the people with whom you associate have a greater influence on your life than you often realize. And this is why parents, why parents carefully choose their children's playmates, don't they? We, if we spend time with people who are morally debased, dishonest, or greedy, their influence will start to rub off on us. The same principle applies to ideas. Ideas. Where do you spend your, your thought life? The concepts that bombard us each day, if we're not careful, they can have a huge negative impact on our doctrine and as a result in our growth in holiness. What you spend your time ingesting on, on the internet is important, isn't it? What you spend time watching. Do you watch TV shows or, or internet shows that openly promote ideas that are contrary to the gospel. Well, that will influence your thinking 
And anybody who tells me otherwise is self-deceived. It influences your thinking when you spend hour after hour after hour either with people or ingesting content that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he, he, says, he, he says, avoid bad company. And then he says, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As long as they tolerated, now think specifically what he's arguing against here. The context is the no resurrection party. That's all the way back in verses 1 to 4. The, the no resurrection party, right? Um, he's, as long as they tolerated that party in the church and failed to recognize the implications and deadly effects of false doctrine, it's as though they were in a stupor, a drunken stupor. And so the church does not tolerate false doctrine. It's, there are all the mainline denominations, the mainline liberal denominations in America today who've gone um, woke and have gone, uh, you know, there's no real hell. The Bible was written by men and it's open to your own personal interpretation. Uh, every, God's going to let everybody into heaven if there is one. All these kind of mainline denominations at one point were orthodox Christian denominations that believe the Bible. And over time, and you can look at one by one the history of them, and you can see where that um, poor doctrine crept into the church. And so the church can't allow that. Then he says this. He says, stop sinning. Wake up from your drunken stupors is right, and do not go on sinning. This is a general call to holiness. They should repent of any and every sin. In context, the sin here, the target sin is tolerating unbelief. To allow false teachers in their midst to question cardinal doctrines of the faith was a sin in which they must stop. And theological compromise on, on core issues of Christianity is a sin against God. It is a sin against God. It dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ and, and brings His glorious name into disrepute. The Lord is far more interested in your holiness and the church's purity than He is in your open-mindedness so that you, the, you, the, you're accepted by the world. He doesn't care if you have the world's approval. He doesn't. He wants doctrinal fidelity. So Paul concludes with this. He says, For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The Corinthians need to wake up to the fact that just because people associated themselves with the church didn't mean they were actually saved. They, they let unsaved people into a position of influence and leadership there in the church, and it was just, it was just bad. It was, it was hurting them. Well, I need to quit. But let me ask this. What, is, what does your life look like? What is shaping you into the person that you are becoming? The, the fact of the resurrection gives meaning and purpose to everything that we do so that we are not left with the ethic of sex, drugs, and rock and roll or eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Because this life isn't all that there is. On the contrary, because God has raised Christ from the dead, death is not the end of our existence. The empty tomb means that this life this life is the beginning of eternal life, an eternal existence in resurrected bodies, living in the presence of God and of Christ in a new heaven and new earth. And frankly, right now, 
I can't wait. My hip's hurting. It has been. Uh, and I can't stand, I'm standing cockeyed because of my hip, right? I'm old. I know some of you laugh. Go ahead, laugh. That just proves how old, well, anyway, I better not say that. But, you know, we all feel it, right? And so we're all looking forward to an embodied existence with our Lord Jesus Christ on the new heaven and new earth. And because Jesus Christ has been raised, listen, because Jesus Christ has been raised, all of God's promises are absolutely secured. We now live every moment of our lives in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so when we look back at the cross and the empty tomb, we see the salvation that was already accomplished for us. And we live each new day struggling, and it is a struggle, to die to self and to live unto Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom and our righteousness from God. And when we look ahead to that great prompt, that great and glorious day, when, what does it say? The heavens will roll up like a scroll, and the promises of God are fully realized in resurrection of our bodies in life eternal. This is our hope. And this is our confidence. And this is how we can go on living in grateful obedience to our wonderful Savior. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection of Christ. It, it should shape everything about our lives. It should, Lord, cause us to live in holiness. It should cause us to take gospel-oriented risks, placing our very lives in your hands if necessary. And it should shape the way that we worship. Because we worship exuberantly and joyfully and not mechanically. Oh Lord, the resurrection of Christ is such a wonderful truth. And our resurrection of our eternal bodies is such a wonderful promise. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well.